Welcome to the Boston Society of the New Jerusalem's Church on the Hill podcast. If you like it, consider joining us at 140 Bowden Street in Boston for more, or visit us on the web at churchonthehillboston.org. The first reading is from, is from Proverbs chapter 9, verses 1 through 6. Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn her seven pillars. She has slaughtered her animals. She has mixed her wine. She has also set her table. She has sent out her servant girls. She calls from the highest places in the town. You that are simple, turn in here. To those without sense, she says, Come, eat of my bread and drink of the wine I have mixed. Lay aside immaturity and live and walk in the way of insight. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This reading is from Ephesians 5.15. To 20. Be careful then how you live, not as unwise people, but as wise, making the most of the time, because the days are evil. So do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit as you sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs among yourselves, singing and making melody to the Lord in your hearts, giving thanks to God the Father at all times, and for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Today's reading is from John chapter 6, verses 51 to 58. And the Lord said, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats of this bread will live forever and forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Very truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood have eternal life. And I will raise them up on the last day, for my flesh is true food, food, and my blood is true drink. Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood abide in me, and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever eats me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like that which your ancestors ate and they died, but the one who eats this bread will live forever.
This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our reading from the writings this morning comes from New Jerusalem, section 227. Our life after death is the life of our love and our faith. So the kind of love and faith we have when we live in this world determines the kind of life that will be ours to eternity. It is a life of hell for people who have loved themselves and the world above all. But it is a life of heaven for people who have loved God above all and their neighbor as themselves. The latter are the ones who have faith. The former do not. The life of heaven is what is called eternal life. The life of hell is what is called spiritual death. Here ends the reading. Living forever. Eternal life. I'm pretty sure that if I surveyed the room, nobody would probably want to die. But does that mean we want to live forever? You know, there have been several science fiction and fantasy stories, movies, and things that, that has explored this idea of living forever, watching the loved ones generation after generation pass before your eyes. Certainly you collect antiques, but this idea of living forever where eventually all you do is see time pass. The idea is that eventually a person would actually become tired of living in this world, in most of these stories. In popular Christianity, we talk about going to your great reward. It sounds nice, doesn't it? Going to your great reward. We generally mean when you die, you will then go somewhere else where you will live forever. Or the other option. There is a downward mobility, I guess. In historical sense, the concept of living forever oftentimes means making your mark, right? People want to make their mark so they are not forgotten. Statues and plaques and things like that. The reality is, forever or eternity is actually now. One of the things I'm going to talk about a little bit later, but I think it's a neat concept. In Hebrew, there's an interesting notion of to be or to exist really only exists in a future tense. It is something that is always about to happen. In the history of philosophy and thought, the idea of trying to figure out what is the now is an interesting problem. Because the second you say now, it's actually in the past. But before you say now, it's in the future. What does it mean to actually live? So I went to some Eastern sources here, and I, I have a love of studying Hinduism and, and Buddhism. 
And this concept of what does it mean for them to live is something that we don't oftentimes express in our culture, in our society. It's not based as much in making plans, I think, as we have in the West. When we ask people who they are, what they want to be, they define themselves oftentimes by what it is they're expecting to do or ordering their lives by things that they can accomplish. We ask, who are you? And we say, well, I'm a, I'm a doctor. Or what are you going to do? And uh, they have all of these statements about the direction of the future. If you go into certain Eastern cultures and you, you ask the people there, the people at the highest level of society, the supposed response would be completely different. They would not say, I am a doctor, or I am this. They would just simply say, well, who are you? Well, I am. I'm alive. There's a, a caste system I think most people know about in India, which isn't the greatest thing in the world. But what's intriguing about it is the highest caste is not the person who owns Facebook. The highest, most noble person is not the one which the largest bank account. The highest and most noble person, the Brahmin in Hinduism, is a person who has actually shunned worldly possessions in a significant way. It is a person who is so deeply devoted to God that the idea of liberating themselves from the needs of existence is what they've done. The idea is if it's a person who all of a sudden realizes that they want to attain the status, now they don't abandon their family, they make sure their family's set and they give them a house and they make sure the children are old enough to start providing. And then they become a monk, basically. A monk that will never use the words, I want. Their concept of existence is not about asking the future of how they're going to get what they want. Their concept of existence is one of service. Waking up in the morning, getting up, and loving the people around them, and hopefully getting fed. Right? They have a bowl. They teach. If people like it, they give them food. In Buddhism... You have this concept of the eightfold path, which is right understanding, right thought, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. But I want to talk about right thought and right understanding. Right thought denotes thoughts of self or, or detachment from the world. There's not a need for violence in the mind because there is not a need to get what you want. You only need to become violent when you are protecting the thing or trying to get the thing that you want. But for them, they abandon the attachment of their possessions. They understand themselves as a person who exists in a moment, much like the Brahmin, and that the moment they are experiencing is a gift from God, even 
when it's pain. There's actually a fun little book called The Tao of Pooh. And even though it's, it's very Buddhist, but it's written about the Tao. And there's a taste in there where a monk sips from a bowl of vinegar and has a smile on his face. And they're asked, why, why would you smile for drinking vinegar? He said, because now I know what vinegar tastes like. And that has made me a more whole person. Right thought and right understanding is understanding that existence in the moment is the gift. And that our job is not to control what's going to happen because in doing that, we bring in ill will, hatred, violence as, in a, as a result of a lack of understanding of who we are as people. I always liked to use the concept when I was teaching religion of the lazy river. I'm not sure how many people know the lazy river. The lazy river is my favorite theme park ride. It's not a roller coaster. It doesn't go up and down. It's not fast. You get in an inner tube and you float in a circle. At the end of the day, you start exactly you end exactly where you started, but you've just had a nice time riding slowly on the lazy river. I liked using the lazy river because people, when I was trying to teach about religious concepts, really understood the lazy river. And rather than talking about sin, I would talk about the kids in the lazy river who tried to always go the opposite direction. <laughs> right? They splashed. They flailed. They got tired. They were always trying to fight up current. I would always use the lazy river to try and talk about the particularities of various religious traditions. And one of the things that I found is when you start getting toward the mystical end, I, whether it's mystical Judaism, mystical Christianity, mystical Hinduism, when you start getting towards the mystical side of the various world religion traditions. They all just kind of want to sit in the tube and float around the river. They want to do it because they look around and they're not trying to ask, how do I get to the end of the lazy river quicker, which some kids do. Right? They get there and they paddle and try to get to the end. That way they can get to the big slide or something. I'm not sure. Some really try and fight against it some try and get in the way and block the lazy river. I don't know if you've ever been in a lazy river where this happens, but they'll, they'll grab all their tubes together and they'll actually try and create a lazy river block. Now, they would be successful, but there, there is something called divine providence, also known as lifeguards, <laughs> who don't allow that to happen. Oftentimes in these Eastern traditions, we spend a great amount of time asking these questions of what does it mean to actually be a person? Oddly enough, in Western Christianity, we haven't spent a whole lot of time. We've made legal codes. It's important to note that a lot of Western Christianity is based off of a cultural identity 
uh, where lawyers actually founded the church. Right? We, we don't always know that, but we have a lot of law codes. We have a lot of thou shalt not. We have a lot of this is what you have to do. Lots of people want to tell you what it means to be a good person. When Moses meets God in the beginning at the bush, God gives him, gives its, her, his, whatever gender terminology you like to use, a name. I am that I am. Or I will be what I will be. Jewish scholars prefer the will be because the I am doesn't actually exist in Hebrew in this form. But this concept of the presence of God being something that is either present or immediate or in the moment. And that is the thing that our soul reaches out for. Our readings today, and I thought it was interesting to look at our readings, are a series of of readings talking about what does it mean for us to achieve our fullest self. Lay aside immaturity and live and walk in the way of insight. The Bible really doesn't describe really clearly what insight is, by the way. We're supposed to do it. We're told in Ephesians They were supposed to understand the will of the Lord and be filled with spirit. And yet we don't. We have spent all of our time looking on what it is we need to do. What are the rules that we live by so that we can understand the will of the Lord? In John, we have a different statement, though. We have a statement of unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you will have no life. That's kind of a different sentiment. One might say that it makes us cannibals. But I think that most of us in this day and age do not actually think that we are supposed to be cannibals. There's a deeper meaning to the flesh and the blood. In the Swedenborgian tradition, we understand that to be the love and wisdom of God and our will and understanding that contains it. It's not as simple as following the rules. It's not as simple as following the Ten Commandments. I was teaching a class on the Ten Commandments once, and there was a person, as we went through the book, who was reading the Swedenborgian understanding of the Ten Commandments. And at one point he said, you know, I'm really concerned because until I took this class, I thought I was okay. What he meant by that is he hadn't killed anybody today. He hadn't stolen anything. He wasn't coveting other people's stuff. But when he understood that the Ten Commandments are actually deeper than just those things, that these are actually not about things that you do, but an attitude by which you you live all of a sudden he realized he had more work he needed to do. What is it, what does it mean, what is it to be created in the image of God? 
What does it mean to be recipients of love? What does it mean to put away childish things? I think most of us are familiar with the Corinthians reading. Love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, does not boast. It is not proud, it is not rude, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrong. That's always a hard one for me. No record of wrong. Love rejoices in truth. What it's really talking about in the second, it's, it's a concept of beingness. It's not about following certain rules. It is less important to follow the rules if your heart is in the right place. So rather than asking ourselves, are we a church or are we a religion, where you get a membership card and you can say, I am saved because I have the right card, in the Eastern tradition, they don't, they don't describe themselves as religions. Buddhism would not call itself a religion. Hinduism would not call itself a religion. It would call itself a way of life, a practice. My question is, if we move away from this concept of Christianity as an organization, as a religion, as a classification, what is the way of life that is Christian? What does it mean for us to expand the flesh of the Lord? When it talks about eating, it means you are what you eat, right? It's about becoming something. The flesh of the Lord, the physical stuff that we see, what does it mean for us to walk in the path that the Lord has shown us? What does it mean for us to not fixate on various rules and checkboxes, but to actually reach out and see each other as loving people in the way that the Lord does? You see, it's not the blood and the flesh united. It's not just about doing the right thing. It's about being the right thing. It's about us joining with that which is greater than ourselves, with the creator that we can feel that we're connected. Faith and religion is about being. This one's for Andy. One of my favorite science fiction movies, even though it bored most of humanity, is the original Star Trek movie. It was an hour-long episode that they made really long and boring and took two and a half hours to tell it. But in that movie, it's an incredible story. In that movie, this huge, monstrous alien is coming towards Earth and threatens to destroy everything in its path. That alien is a satellite that we made. It's one of the Voyager probes that we sent out to learn. And it comes back home because it has learned everything it can possibly learn. It can understand everything that it can understand. It has, in fact, become bigger and larger than humanity itself. But it comes back 
Because it wants to understand why. It comes back because knowing everything wasn't enough. It wanted to know why. And with that, it merged with the creator and it shifted from doing to being. I don't know if that makes sense. Before, it was just going through its existence, learning because that's what it was told to do. But when it merged with its creator, it became about being. What does it mean for us as Christians to stop looking at ourselves as doers and become beers? What does it mean for us to care more about the love, the unselfishness, the desire to unite with the people around us? What does it mean about that being more important than the rules? It doesn't mean we get rid of rules, by the way, as as we also heard. The Lord did not come to do what? To destroy the law, but to fulfill it. The way of Christ is a way of inner meaning, not outer meaning. On this day, what does it mean for us not to be distracted by the things of the world, but embrace the I am? Amen. Thank you for listening to the Boston Society of the New Jerusalem's Church on the Hill podcast. If you liked what you hear, consider joining us at 140 Bowden Street, Boston, for more. Or visit us on the web at churchonthehillboston.org.